A lot of sickness uh, going on uh, right now, even in our church family, so uh, I'm glad that you are healthy enough uh, to be here. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 13. So our texture study will be uh, the entire chapter, but let me just read verses 8 through 15 for us here, and then I'll pray. Again, ask for the Lord's blessing on uh, this time, and then we'll work through the passage. So starting in verse 18 of chapter 13, this is what the Bible says. It says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Saul, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal, and have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, as you have not kept the Lord's command, what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel rose and went up from there, from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went after Samuel or Saul to meet the army. They went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Bible. And uh, Lord, we know this is uh, your true word to us. And so, Lord, I pray that somehow you would bless the preaching of your word and that you would indeed speak to us. Please help me to be a good communicator, help the congregation be good listeners. I pray that your spirit would be active and moving and changing hearts. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So throughout the storyline of the scriptures, we see just a number of like real life stories. And in these real life stories, we can do like a little bit of like comparing, contrasting between the different characters that we see. Uh, they can be maybe almost sort of like models for us to follow, or maybe models or warnings for us to avoid. And at times, these real-life stories happen in like the same historical timeline, where it makes the comparing and contrasting like even easier for us to spot. So if you're with us in our text last week, in our study of 1 Samuel 12, we detailed the life of Samuel, which was a life that was coming at least to the end of his more public ministry, his more public leadership. And in this story or text from last week, Samuel recognized that the newly appointed king was time for him to take over that role of public leadership. And so Samuel recognized and accepted what was happening, read how he stood up before the people. Uh, he basically put himself on trial before the nation of Israel. Uh, he asked Israel that if in his many years of leadership over them, that started when he was very young and to when he was very old and gray, in those many years, if anyone had charges against them, they could bring it before him now. Any charges of where he perhaps abused his leadership, compromised his integrity. To which we hear last week, remember Israel responded back to Samuel, that indeed Samuel's integrity did remain intact, that he cannot charge, uh, bring any charges against him or any abuse uh, that he had in his leadership over them. 
we talked about last week, this character sketch of Samuel, this model, this example of Samuel, this, this actually is a good model for us, for us to seek, to follow after. Uh, as we number our days, we want to be people of integrity. People are humble before the Lord and before others. Right? This is what we want for all the days of our lives. So at the end of our life, or end of leadership, we can say that we've faithfully finished the race with we've kept the faith. I'll say it again, last week, the character Samuel gives a good model, a good example, one worth trying to follow. But now, as we get to our text today in chapter 13, we get to the story revolving around Saul. And one big decision that he made in the early days of his leadership, which was a decision that was just so tragic that it completely changed the course of his life. And this decision proves, uh, proves to be a warning for us, one that we should seek to avoid in our own life. By the way, I mentioned last week, the character sketch was one we can learn from. Um, for all of us, but particularly, I think, for those in leadership, and I think the same holds true today. I think all of us will face the same challenges that we see Saul had, but I think maybe even more so for those who are in leadership. Okay? So that is a little bit of a reminder where we left off. Let's back where we were, starting in verse 1 of chapter 13. So in text we read that Saul lived for one year and then became king, and then he reigned for two years over Israel. At least that's how the ESV translated and we read that as he reigned, he had 3,000 men of Israel, basically like an elite army, maybe think like some type of special forces. And out of that 3,000, we see that 2,000 were with Saul in the hill country, and the other 1,000 was with his son Jonathan in Gilbia of Benjamin, which happens to be Saul's hometown. And as the special forces were given responsibilities, we see that the rest of the men of the army were sent home, everyone to his own tent. Okay, now ready, let's hit pause here, just because how confusing this passage starts out particularly surrounding the age of Saul and his reign. So to see in verse 1, if you have the ESV, like what I read out of, it says, Saul lived for one year and reigned for two years, uh, which is how some, but not all, actual ancient manuscripts have this verse translated. So if you have a different translation this morning, your verse 1 might say something different, it might say like uh, he uh, was maybe around 30 years age and he reigned for like 42 years. And so what's, what's going on here? Why would some ancient manuscripts, like the ESV, and others use to translate, um, say, ages of one and two, but others have different ages. So, now clearly, I don't think Saul was like one years old when he started his reign, uh, how the ESV uh, seems to translate this. We know he wasn't one because the context of the book, in chap previous chapters, particularly chapter nine, before Saul became king, remember how he was old enough to, to go on like the donkey search and rescue mission? So it seems unlikely that he was like one years old when he did that. It also seems unlikely that his reign was for only two years, based on all that takes place in 1 Samuel, which we're going to see in the weeks to come. So then, how do, we, how do we think through verse 1? Okay, so first, we do need to understand that at times, although rare, there are actually some transmission errors in ancient manuscripts. Right? There are some times that does happen. And commonly, these rare uh, uh, discrepancies revolve around things like numbers. In fact, even the number in verse 5 of our text, we get to in just a bit, it does seem like perhaps that maybe a zero was added somewhere along the lines when they're, they're um, adding up or numbering the Philistine army. So even though they're incredibly rare, and even though there's a meticulous process by which manuscripts are cap copied and handed down through the ages, at times, there were scribal errors. I'll say it again, often through things like numbers or maybe names, um, uh, spellings of names. And at times, it even like scribes maybe seemed like maybe put notes in like a manuscript that they're copying that maybe later scribes didn't realize like there were notes, and so they actually include them into the text. So even though we do believe and we do trust that the original manuscripts of the Bible was without error, 
we do acknowledge at times that the manuscripts at times do have some discrepancies, do have some things that we have to think through. Because of that, there's actually a whole study within the Christian faith to help translators have confidence that we can know what the original text of Scripture uh, actually said. And if that interests you, please come talk to me. Okay, so before I was in seminary, um, I had classes concerning some of these things. And it actually was really encouraging to learn about just all the different manuscripts and how we can trust that the Bibles that we have are, are true and trustworthy. And this actually only increased my trust in the Bible itself. So as mentioned again, if you have uh, interest in that, just, just come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. So it's possible, verse 1, there's just a scribal error that at some point within church history ended up being passed down to give the numbers that we see here. That Saul was one and reigned for two years. It does seem likely what happened here. Simple copying here. I'll give you another possibility. And this is why uh, some translations, or they could actually could be true that Paul, or what Saul did say, or the text did say that he reigned for one year, or was one years old and then reigned for two years. That actually this was what was in the original uh, manuscript. And it's possible because the author perhaps was not making the historical point in terms of the full timeline of Saul's reign, but he's using these numbers of one years and two years to make more of a theological point of terms of Saul's faithfulness in terms of when he was king. So if you remember several weeks back to our study in chapter 10, remember how the Spirit of God rushed on Saul? So in a sense, he became like a new man. So it does seem probable or possible that that event actually occurred like one year prior. So what the text is actually meaning is that Saul lived one year walking with God. And then as he reigned as king, remember how I mentioned a few times throughout our study that he actually started out like pretty well? And perhaps that good start that Saul had was for two years, which does sit, seem to fit the historical timeline. But then after two years, we get to our text today, and Saul so pushed away from God that in a sense he stopped ruling and reigning over Israel with the blessing of God. Okay. So to say it again, it's a little tricky to understand verse 1. I tend to think there was a scrabble error, but the alternative that I just mentioned to you does seem to fit the timeline. It is possible. Okay, keep going in the text. As Saul's elite forces were assigned to the various locations, we see that Saul's son, Jonathan, or Jonathan was faced with a challenge. A challenge that specifically came from a garrison of Philistines who were located in Giba, which is about three miles from Gibeah. And this garrison would have been a major threat to Saul and to his kingdom. However, we see in verse 3 of the passage that Jonathan actually was up to the challenge. And he was actually able to defeat the Philistines, doing so in such a way that news began to travel in such a way that all the Philistines heard about it. And as the news traveled among the Philistines of this great defeat, news also traveled to Saul of this great victory. In the text, we see that Saul was, he was so excited about this victory that he blew trumpets all throughout the land, uh, declaring to all the Hebrews that they have now had this great victory. Verse 4. As the victorious trumpet ran throughout, or rang throughout Israel, as all Israel began to hear what happened, they began to say how Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, which, by the way, is one of the hopes of why they appointed him king in chapter 8. Like They hoped that their king would protect them from outside forces, which Saul seemingly do here, does here through his son, Jonathan. And as the victory became the talk of the town throughout Israel, it became a sore spot for the Philistines. We read that Israel became a stench to the Philistines because of what had happened. So the Philistines, as they lost this battle, they're, they're angry. They're bitter towards Israel. They begin to see Israel as like obnoxious, uh, repulsive. As the text says, a 
stench. Right? They were so embarrassed by this defeat. They're so frustrated by the celebration that came after. They hated to hear the sounds of the trumpet. Animosity is now like welling up even more so in the Philistines. Whatever hate that they had toward the Philistines is like now being amplified here. Like every fire of the being is now is towards hatred towards Israel. As the Philistines are growing in their repulsiveness towards Israel, we see that they didn't keep their thoughts hidden from Israel to the point that Israel had no idea that they felt this way about them. No, Israel knew. It was clear to them that they were obnoxious in the sight of the Philistines. It was clear that the Philistines despised them. So we see at the end of verse 4, Saul began to send a new message around the kingdom to come join him in Gilgal. Because Saul knew it was just a matter of time before the Philistines made an attack against them. Verse 5. Saul sent word around his kingdom. We read the Philistines mustered up to fight against Israel. And the text, whoever's like in charge of like their propaganda recruitment for the Philistines, this person knew what they were doing. Because we read that they were able to muster up uh, a group of 30,000 chariots, or maybe 3,000 chariots, which would, still would have been a lot. Or they also had 6,000 horsemen. They were able to muster up an army that was so big that they numbered like sand on the seashore. This, this is a massive Philistine army that is forming here. An army that is ready to take their stench out of their noses by coming in and destroying Israel. And as this massive army formed, we see that they came, they set up camp in Mishmash, which is where Saul was in verse 2 of our text. Right, so they're already like going into Israel territory. And as this massive army camped, we see in verse 6, the men of Israel began to understand, hey, we're in real trouble here. We are hard-pressed, our text tells us. They're understanding, this is more than what we can ever handle. And they begin to realize that they're in trouble, not simply because of the massive Philistine army that was basically camping out in their territory, because of also because they understood where the Philistines were located, with such a strategic location. So where the Philistines were located in the scene, they would have geographically had like the high ground, which was incredibly important in this age of warfare. And not only was this location where the Philistines located, not only is this the high ground, this is located in a place that kind of split Israel in half, which are the limited ways for Israel to like counterattack them. Say so again, Israel, they're, they're hard pressed here. So in the text we read in desperation, they began to hide anywhere that they could hide, meaning Israel. In the text we see some of Israel went to caves, some hid in holes, others hid in rocks, others hid in tombs. Still yet others hidden cisterns. Uh, personally, I think the cave would have been my first choice. The tomb, probably my last choice. In the text, for those who did not go hiding, we see in verse 7, they just like get out of Dodge completely. And we see that they forge across the river Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. And as all of this happened, as so much of Israel is either hiding or fleeing, we see that Saul was still in Gilgal. And we see all those who are still with him are like, they're becoming scared, understandably. Like they're trembling here with fear on the scene that's taking place. It's in the text, as they remain in Gilgal, we see that Samuel gave instructions to Saul that they, while they were in Gilgal, they were to wait there until he uh, arrives on the scene. Presumably, Samuel is going to give Saul some instructions from the Lord on what they were to do from there. 
I mentioned last week, even though Samuel was stepping down from his more prominent leadership role over Israel, that he wasn't fully leaving them. He was still there to help them as they needed, which clearly this time was. So the text, Saul and his trembling army, we see they waited for Samuel for seven long days, which is the point of time set uh, by Samuel for Saul to wait. Seven long days. And you see, as they waited, the longer they waited, they began to grow more and more impatient in their wait. And as their impatience started to increase in the camp, we see that morale began to decrease. And it decreased to the point that some now started to scatter from Saul. So in the text, Saul decided that he had waited long enough. He decided he cannot wait for Samuel any longer. He couldn't wait for the instructions from the Lord, whatever those instructions might be. So in this passage, in this scene, Saul decided to take matters into his own hands. He needed to take control of the situation. For him, the Lord's timing was just not going to work. Friends, by the way, we'll get back to this more at the end. But this year, this desire for control, this is really the beginning of the end for Saul. It's in the text. He decided to take matters into his own hands. He decided he needed to take control of the situation. We read in verse 9, he called out for someone to bring the burnt offerings to him, to also bring along the peace offerings over to him, because he was going to offer up a sacrifice. And even, he was going to do so, even so biblically, that was not his role to do. Right? That was for the priest, for Samuel to offer the sacrifice. So yes, right, Saul, he's the king. But there's no provision in the scripture of a king offering up sacrifice to the people. He said, again, only the priest can do that. But as mentioned, Saul, he's growing impatient. Like he didn't trust Samuel well enough to do his job, his role. Saul clearly did not trust the Lord and his timing. All that Saul could see, which was that which was going around him, he'd see they were in trouble. He could see people trembling. He could see the morale collapsing within the camp. He could count. He could see that his number of his army was shrinking. So I said again, Saul privately decided it's time to take control, to take matters into his own hands, doing so by rejecting the good commands of the scripture. And he unlawfully gave forth the burnt offering. Perhaps even thinking to myself, there's like maybe it's cruel that God would put prohibit these prohibitions around the worship of him. Like, why can't I actually do the offering? Why does it have to be a priest? After all, I am the king. I have the skills. I know how to do this. Verse 10. As soon as Saul finished up giving the burnt offering, right, guess who shows up? Samuel. Right? Saul could not patiently wait just a little bit longer. Samuel came just like he said he would. The right time. He wasn't late. He didn't delay. He came. In the text, as Saul understood that Saul, uh, Samuel had arrived in the camp, we see that he went out to like, give him a little meet and greet. And I do kind of wonder, you know, Saul is heading over to Samuel, if he's maybe trying to think, like, how can I tr- cover my tracks here? Perhaps knowing what he did was wrong. And as Samuel and Saul met, our text tells us that Samuel wasn't blind to what had just taken place. Rather, he knew what took place. Right, Saul was not going to like pull the wool over his eyes. 
So in the text, as they meet, rather than giving some like pleasantries of small talk to catch up, to see how things are going, it appears almost like immediately Samuel confronts Saul for his actions. So in the text, Saul, what have you done? Why didn't you wait like I told you to wait? Why in the world did you think you had the right to do that which was not for you to do related to this sacrifice? So you knew, biblically, this is not for you to do. Why would you do this? So how is you trying to take control of the situation, breaking the good commands of God? How do you think this is actually going to help the situation? Only for Saul to respond, okay, Samuel? Okay, I hear what you're saying. But let me try to explain. Okay, so here's the story. So here we were. We're waiting for you, just like you said. But the longer we waited, the harder it was for everyone. And you know everyone is already trembling with fear from day one. So the longer we waited for you, and, and by the way, let me back up, Samuel. You have to admit, it was kind of a long time. Like, why don't you just come to us right away? So the longer we waited for you, people are starting to lose heart. People are starting to scatter, which had made it much harder for us to survive against the huge army of the Philistines that they mustered together. So Samuel, with all these factors before me, you know, you have to understand, like, I, I'm the king. I have to make a decision here. So as a leader, as a king, I decided I needed to do something. After all, the Philistines are about ready to come down against me at Gilgal. And if I would have just kept waiting for you, we would have been eliminated. I'll talk about this more in just a bit. But he's like making excuses here. He's, he's blame shifting. After that, after the blame shifting, we see Saul now really trying to turn it on here. Like he's trying to play the religious card to Samuel. Where we see he has a gall to tell Samuel, after all, we didn't seek the favor of the Lord yet. So Samuel, I mean, I basically, I had to force myself to offer up the burnt offering. As if like, he was doing like the right, humble thing. Now, let me take a step back. It's actually pretty incredible here by Saul. Right? Not only is he make, making excuses and blame shifting, or even trying to use this sinful act here to actually argue how like humble and spiritual he was. That he was only doing this unlawful, sinful thing to humbly seek after the Lord. In the text, as Saul tried to paint himself in the best light that he possibly could, we see Samuel, he ain't having it. Right? He can see right through Saul. Sure, maybe Saul deceived others, perhaps maybe even deceived himself, and what he did was okay, but Samuel is not deceived. So we see... In verse 13, Samuel responded back to Saul. Saul, you have committed great foolishness. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you to do. Which, by the way, proved that he wasn't being as religious as he claimed to be. We can't say we're walking with God while at the same time knowingly and willfully like, breaking his commands. Then in verse 13, Saul, you know what? If your heart was actually for God, I've got to tell you something. The Lord would establish your kingdom over Israel forever. But if it's in the end, you didn't really have a heart for God because you decided you needed to take matters into your own hands, because you decided you needed to have control, because you forsook the commands of Scripture, because you decided to act in prideful foolishness, this kingdom that you just claim that you're actually trying to preserve, it's not going to continue in your name. Saul, going forward, no matter how hard you try to hold on to the kingdom, 
to your power, to your control, the Lord is going to take it from you. And for us in the weeks to come in our study for Samuel, we do see Saul, like he's trying to do everything he can to keep his power over the kingdom. Where he's even like seeking to eliminate anyone who came against him, any type of threat. But all that Saul did, all of this continually to try to control was to no avail. Because in the end, the Lord indeed judged Saul. Took everything from him. Saul's grip would not hold. And as Samuel told Saul in the text that the Lord would take the kingdom from him, we also see that he told Saul that there would be a replacement coming, a king that would, the Lord would raise up, that the Lord would seek a man after his own heart, a man who would come and replace Saul to be the prince or the leader over the people, which we'll see is David, ultimately Jesus. In our text, Samuel to Saul, you need to understand, Saul, you brought this on yourself because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Say it again. You wanted control. You wanted power. You didn't want to trust in the Lord and his good timing. Keep saying this is like the beginning of the end for Saul. Over time, things just get worse and worse and worse for him. We kept doing more and more things to try to keep his grip over Israel. From the end of his reign, he looked nothing like the start of his reign. In this text, Samuel shared this word with Saul. We see that both men got up and left the scene. We see Samuel, where he went. We see where Saul went. Saul headed to Gilgal with the rest of his army. There we see we went to the battle scene of Gibeah of Benjamin. And by the way, just maybe a little side note. Do you think like this hard word that Saul just received from Samuel? You think this would have like just shook him? Like shook him in a way like, like he's like repenting and he's trying to make changes. Like he's he's hearing this and he's so broken over what he's just done. But in this text here for Saul, like he couldn't hear it. He just kept moving forward. He didn't hear the warning. That rebuke meant nothing to him. And this actually led to Saul continue to spiral. He just refused to listen. He didn't want to hear the warning, which I do hope is not true for us today in this character study. As we hear the warning of Saul, the warning throughout the scriptures, however the warning may hit home to us, that we hear it in such a way that we walk with repentance, with actual change. So it's not just good enough to feel a little bit of conviction and then just keep going. But we need to feel conviction and, and change. In the text. As the army arrived, we see Samuel take, or Saul take count of what he had with him. We see he had about 600 men, way less than what the Philistines had. So as Saul... Son Jonathan, as the army stayed in their camp, we read for the most part the Philistines also stayed in their camp at Michmash. Although we do see in the text they did send out three groups of raiders from among them. We see where one group went to Orpha, to the land of Shaul. Another group of raiders went to Beth Horon. We see a third group of raiders went to the border that looks down in the valley of Zebiam towards the wilderness. And what the Philistines seemed to be doing here through the raiders was basically cutting off like all supply routes leading to the battle. Right? This would have further kept Israel from ever being able to assemble some type of large army to counterattack. 
Like they're cutting up like all their supplies here, which only would have added to the dire predicament that God's people were already in at this scene. Verse 19. Then to make matters even worse for Israel, we see that there was like no blacksmith to be found throughout the land. And this would have made it worse. Why? Because the blacksmiths were the ones who make the swords and the spears and the shields for the army. Here at this scene, they're, they're not present in Israel. They're not present in the land. And they weren't present because of how much influence and power the Philistines had over them. In our text, we read that during this time period, the Philistines said, hey, Israel, uh, you know what, guess what? You can't have any blacksmiths in the land lest you make for yourself swords and spears. So in that time period, in verse 20, Israel, like they had to go into their enemies, to the Philistines, if they wanted even like their plowshare or their mattocks or their axe or sickle sharpened. Right? That's how bad it was for them. If that wasn't bad enough, it appears the Philistines would then gouge them as they came, charging two-thirds a shekel for a plowshare and a mattock, one-third a shekel for an axe or a setting of a gourd. So like in this context, even before this scene here, like there's like nothing good about this situation for God's people. Politically, things were bad. Right? An outside nation had so much control, they're calling their shots. For the military, this is bad. They had an inferior army. The Philistines had a much bigger army with a high, grand, uh, high ground, and they're cutting out like, all the supplies. It's verse 22, because the Philistines controlled the blacksmiths on the day as they formed the battle, they couldn't muster up a sword or a spear to equip their army. The text tells us that even it's so bad to the point that Saul and Samuel were the only ones who had a sword to protect themselves. With that, that's how our text ends. Saul, Jonathan, this small army, this ill-equipped army, waiting as the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Mishmash. I mean, just think about this scene. This was awful. This is a fear-filled time for everyone including Saul. Now, there's a little bit of sneak preview to get to our text next week in chapter 14. We do see the Lord fight for his people. Despite all odds, despite the foolish sin of Saul, God graciously brings about victory for his people. He stays true to his promises they made to him yet again, but, but that's, that's next week. So for this week, I just want to concentrate on this passage here and all these events surrounding it, particularly how they relate to the tragic decision that Saul made to try to take control and to offer up the unlawful sacrifice. So to close this time, how I want to concentrate on this passage is by looking at just different aspects that led to uh, this point of Saul making this decision. So first, as we go through this at the end, I just want to consider just some of the temptations Saul would have faced uh, as he made this decision. Second, then I just want to consider the justifications that Saul made after he gave in to these temptations. Third, I want to consider just the tragic results that occurred by giving in to these temptations by Saul. And finally, I just want to say a few words as relate to us and the warning of this passage, the city again, that I hope that we do here. Okay, so first, let's start out with the temptations that Saul faced. And this, let's be honest, these are real temptations. Temptations are perhaps at different levels that we might also face. So I have a handful. Let's think through these temptations. So Saul, first, had temptations that comes with success. When you think back to the backstory of this passage, Saul was off to a good start. A successful start. Chapter 10, he is able to rally Israel together as one to defeat the Ammonites. And friends, whenever we have success, that's hard at times to deal with. It can be a real temptation. 
And it can be really hard when we're young, like Saul at this scene, where we're tempted to think that we're always going to have success. We're tempted to think that we can do like no wrong. We're so tempted by our success that we can like to trust in ourselves rather than trusting in the Lord. Friends, for those of us here who have had different levels of success, whether it be school, maybe your job, whatever it may be, listen, that success, there's a temptation that comes with it. A temptation, maybe get a little too big for your own britches. Success has a way of like puffing up our egos with pride that can lead us to do things that we should never do. Second, I think Saul also is tempted by praise, which can come when we have success. Right? People can start to praise us for it. People can start to tell us all, like, how great we are, which only further puffs up our pride, only further inflates our egos, where we can start to think we can do basically whatever we want to do. And by the way, parents, we're often the ones who are most guilty of this when it comes to the life of our kids. Where we tend to like praise our kids for everything they do as if they never do anything wrong. And if we give like unceasing praise to our kids, we're actually setting up our kids for a great fall. In the context of Saul's life, at least the beginning of his reign, he had a lot of praise. Remember, he virtually had all of Israel behind him. Like everyone is like praising him as their king. And all of this praise in a short period of time seemed to have a real influence on Saul and his ego. Where he became just incredibly arrogant. Where he felt he could do no wrong. Where like no one, not even Samuel, could speak into his life. Got to be careful with praise. Third, Saul faced a temptation that comes with the fear of man. And I do think it's interesting that those who receive the most praise from man often are the ones who are most afraid of man, perhaps not wanting to upset others who praise them, so they're so fearful, so they do everything they can to kind of keep the praise going. In this text, Saul did seem to have some real fear of man issues here. I mean, he could see the panic in the people. He could see that morale was low. He understood people were leaving. Like, he was so afraid of what others were thinking. Like, he's willing to compromise here just to try to make them happy so they would stop leaving his side. Third, or fourth, saw the temptation of impatience. And if we're honest, we know how hard it is to fight this temptation. It can be a real struggle to wait upon the Lord. In this text, even though Samuel told Saul when he's coming for Saul, it wasn't enough. He got impatient. He wanted things to work on his timeline. He wanted to speed things up. He wanted to control. He was so impatient, which actually is the fifth thing. Saw the temptation of wanting control. Let's be honest. Let's think how tempting this had to be for Saul. Let's maybe put ourselves in his shoes. Think He had a small army that was actually getting smaller. He understood that more and more like, are on the fence. And this is in contrast to the Philistines, who had a big army, who was a highly motivated army, who were eager to eliminate them. And even to back up, even before Israel became a stench in the noses of the Philistines, the Philistines had all this control over them to the point that they could even dictate that Israel could have like, no blacksmith in the land. 
for Saul, for his kingdom, I'm sure he felt like everything was spiraling out of control. Nothing was going to plan here. So he was tempted to take control over something. Like he's trying to get something to go his way. For us, friends, all these temptations, I'm sure they're just like building up in his heart. Building up in such a way he's able to convince himself that he was actually okay to do the unlawful sacrifice. And this is the warning for us when it comes to our own temptations that likewise can build in our own hearts. They can take us to places we never imagined we would end up. So the temptations. Second, let's consider the justifications that Saul made as he gave in to these temptations. On the front end, you know, he faced, as he faced the temptation, we see that Saul justified what he's doing simply because he wanted to keep Israel together. Right? That's his justification. Hey, I just want to keep everyone together. Everyone's discouraged. They're scattering. Morale's low. The group's getting smaller. More and more are leaving us. Saul worried how many others might leave. So in ways, it kind of sounds a little right. Almost sounds like a legitimate reason to do what he did. That's how he justified himself. He's just wanting to keep Israel together. And really, what's so wrong about that? Then the back end, after giving in temptation, we see Saul further justify his actions. As I mentioned earlier, first he blame shifts. He blames Samuel for being late. It wasn't his fault that he did the sacrifice. He was justified. It's because it was Samuel's fault. He's the one who should have came earlier. Saul was simply a victim of Samuel not getting there on time. Under that justification, if that wasn't enough, Saul even came up with the lame excuse that he actually was doing an act of worship. After all, there wasn't a sacrifice given up to that point. So really, I justify what I did because I'm really kind of doing the right spiritual thing here. This all kind of sounds good. I mean, really, if Samuel's on time, this went to happen, it had to be hard to wait. Saul just really wanted to worship God. What's so bad about that? Sure, he didn't do it in spirit and in truth, but he did worship. See how that builds? Friends, we need to be careful. We have to be careful to justify our sin. There is no excuse for any of our sin before a holy and just God. This leads to the third thing I want to point out to think about from the study of Saul is the consequences that come from our sin. In the text, none of the justifications that Saul made for himself carried weight before God. He was judged. There was real consequences to Saul's sin of this unlawful sacrifices. Consequences are so heavy, it led to the kingdom being torn away from him. And in the weeks to come, because he didn't hear the word of Samuel after he called him on this sin, as he just kept going, more and more consequences came. Like his life is just one of complete misery. Because he never wanted to turn from his sin. And not only misery for himself, but actually misery for all those around him, including his son, Jonathan, which we'll see in this study. Friends, sin has consequences. We can't justify our sin. And the more we kind of hold on to it, it just creates a bigger and bigger ripple effect that harms more and more and more around us. Friends, that's the warning of Saul's life. 
So this is the last portion I want to close the sermon with, just bringing this home for us. I do that by just giving us a plea to hear this warning of Saul, the tragedy of his life, to hear it in such a way that you stop giving into temptation. Stop putting yourself unnecessarily in places of temptation. Rather, as temptations come, whatever they may be, fight them by fleeing from them. Scripture tells us to flee from temptation. As you fight temptation by fleeing from temptation, there's times if and when you fall into it, listen, don't justify why you fell into it. Don't make excuses why it really isn't that bad. Especially if, like others like love when you confront you in it. Rather, if you fall, make real changes. But it is such foolishness to continue to live our, way, our lives in such a way that we're just ongoing, continuing to sin. Fight. Flee from sin. And in the end, run to the one true sacrifice, which is a sacrifice found in Jesus Christ. The one who came at the right time without delay. Where he came for us in such a way that Jesus did trust the will of the Father. To the point that he even willingly laid down his life. He gave up control on the cross, laying down his life to bear the punishment of our sin, only to rise again from the dead. To prove that he's actually the true king who came after the heart of God. To prove that in the end, Jesus, Jesus alone, that's where we find forgiveness and justification of our sin. Friends, listen, we can't justify ourselves. We can't. But there's good news. By grace through faith, you can find justification in Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, as we close this character study, yes, hear the warning of King Saul. Hear the warning in such a way like you don't want to be with him or be like him. Don't try to control everything around you in ways that you can justify sin. Rather, hear the warning and run to Jesus. Give him the control of your life. Trusting in the end, he will come at the right time for us. He will come. Trusting that he is the one who is perfect in character, who will never, ever let you down. He will never lead you astray. His plan, his word, the timing of his plan, they're always right. And he will never turn away those who have sinned greatly if they would turn to him. The good news is he will forgive you. He will forgive all who by faith come to him, including all here today. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus, who is tempted in every way yet without sin. And Lord, please do forgive us for the times we foolishly sin against you and foolishly try to cover it up through various means of justification. And Lord, I do pray that we would hear the warning of Saul's life, that we hear it in such a way that we would run to Jesus and we would trust that indeed he is good, that he is in control, that we live for him all of our days. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen.